You're listening to Breakaway Wealth, the show designed to help you build wealth faster, think bigger, and break out of the herd. Now, here's your host, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver, and with me today, Chris Younger. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate it. Chris, you're from an area that's dear to my heart, Colorado, and my son lives in Centennial, so not too far from where you're at. But I miss the food in Colorado, and it's kind of weird, but one of the things that I miss is the cherry cricket. Remember oh, yeah. our, the, the green chili there on a cold winter day? And, you know, I know there's a secret that it's not that cold in the winter in Colorado, but I won't, yeah, don't, we won't tell Don't anybody. tell anybody. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like Florida. Now I live in Florida, Chris, and I tell people, you know, it's way too hot in the summer here. You would not enjoy it. I mean, <laughs> there's nobody at the beach. I mean, you, you just wouldn't like it. It's, uh, but it, by the way, it's a lot more humid than in Colorado, but Colorado summers are pretty, pretty good. Colorado right, Chris, summers are good. Tell everybody about yourself, what you're doing, and uh, then we'll dive in. Perfect. Well, thanks, Jim. I appreciate it and appreciate you having me on. So I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of a uh, it's a financial services firm here in Denver. So we really we've got three pieces to our business. We have the core of it is an investment bank. So we help entrepreneurs uh, get liquidity on their business, whether that's to sell their business or recapitalize it. Sometimes we'll help them raise money or do acquisitions. We also have a on the back end a family office. We have about 90 families. We manage about a billion dollars for them. And they almost all of them have been through our investment bank at some level. And then we have a group we call Pathfinder, which is really to give business owners guidance before they go to market, maybe a year to five years before they're going to market on kind of how to optimize value and make sure that they can see the test before they take it. So we'll work with 30 or 40 companies a year on the Pathfinder program. We'll do 15 or 20 deals a year in the bank. And then again, we hope to be able to continue working with those clients uh, through the family office, which for us kind of checks our, our core three values are hustle, humility, and relationships. And so being able to uh, keep those clients on through the family office, at least it allows us to honor that third value uh, in a way that's meaningful. I love that hustle, humility, and relationships. I think that echoes a lot of things, uh, uh, a lot of the important keys to being successful. And one of the ones that I think is lost on a lot of people is humility. Everybody wants to tell you how great they are and everything else. But what I really like about what you said is, you know, when I first read your information that was in my calendar, I said, why am I having a financial advisor on my show? Because I'm normally like, I don't want to say anti Wall Street, but I'm anti Edward Jones and these guys that are just money babysitters that aren't doing anything. You know, they're just getting paid to acquire assets and get assets under management. And then they're really not doing anything. They're like middlemen, but they're not providing value. And so I am anti that because I think it's lazy and I think it's not the way that people make money, especially business owners. Like you mentioned, we have a lot of business owners in the audience. I own over 30 businesses or parts of 30 businesses myself, and I believe in business ownership. And I'll tell you a quick story because you'll appreciate this with Denver. So when I first got started in the business, I got started as a fee-based financial planner. So that's why I'm anti that because yeah, right. I know what it means, right? And I did it for 15 years coming out of college. I didn't know any better. And I thought this is how people make money. But my market 
you know, everybody was going after the doctors, the accountants, the attorneys, and they were, you know, and this is back in the eighties. So it was like, you know, you had to have the right shoes, you had to have the right suit, the right tie, all that crap. Right. And that none of us wear anymore. Thank God. And I was like, you know, this just isn't my vibe. So I went down and I was driving down San, Santa Fe Boulevard and I saw these like little welding shops, plastics formation place, you know, businesses. And I thought, these are my people in jeans. And, you know, <laughs> and I started working in that market, Chris, and I blew away everybody else in the office that was going after the shiny, you know, high profile executives. And I loved it. My clients were in, you know, ripped t-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes. And I had to change when I would leave the office because back in those days, we were required to wear a suit. But I love the family office concept too. And there's a lot of business owners out there and they don't know what their exit strategy is. And there's nobody that their CPA isn't going to help them with their exit strategy. Nobody really sometimes knows what is the goal of owning this business, right? So talk about like what you've seen in your experience and like kind of maybe speak directly to some of those business owners out there like that are thinking, I don't know how the heck this ends. <laughs> well, it's a great question. And it is one that a lot of business owners struggle with for a bunch of different reasons. One is where they've been running their business for 30 years, the whole plan to exit and then the exit process they've never done. So it's not, I mean, at some level, I think it's natural for all of us, right, to avoid some of those things that we're not that comfortable with. I think the second piece is that a lot of business owners, myself included, we gain a lot of our identity through our business. And as much as we would love to say, yeah, you should separate work and, you know, kind of this whole work-life balance. I think for most entrepreneurs, their work is so integrated into their life and into their identity, into what's important to them, that the notion of, hey, I'm going to move past this, I think it can be pretty daunting for them and confusing and create some anxiety for them. So it's not, it's not surprising to me that a lot of business owners don't necessarily spend a lot of time on this. But as I always tell clients, you're going to exit your business. It's your choice, whether it's horizontally or vertically. And so really the plan is, how do you plan for that in a way that's going to not only serve you as the owner of that asset, but also take care of the people that are important to you, your team, your customers, you know, the reputation of your business. And, and it, in order to do that, you do have to put a plan together. You've got to be thoughtful about it. And people always ask me, hey, when should somebody start thinking about exiting? I mean, I think in terms of the actual planning, it's probably three to five years is great. In terms of the building your business to be saleable, it, that should be forever. That right. should happen today, right? In terms of, because I do believe that if you can build a business that's saleable, that really means that that business is scalable and is, you know, can really can serve you as a business owner, whether you're working in it or not. And so that's the real planning that needs to go on for that business owner. And, and um, that's the thing that we encourage. So I think that you've just brought up something that's interesting is you said if you're working in it or not. So like if you are an absentee owner, then, you know, like you're three to five years. And like you said, you know, you're figuring out how am I going to maximize value? Who am I going to sell it to? Am I going to sell it to just, you know, a competitor? Is a VC going to come in and give me a bunch of money? And you got to be careful with that, by the way, because I've seen that not work out a lot. Or if you're working in that 
business, then whoever buys it might want you to stay for a year, two years, three years, whatever it is. And you got to plan for that because I, I see business owners get kind of caught flat footed, not planning for that. Yeah. I always tell our clients, it's really in your best interest to plan to work in the business for another couple of years yeah. past the sale for a bunch of different reasons. One, and you know, selfishly for them, it will make the business more valuable to a buyer. If there's going to be a flash cut, even if you're an absentee owner, most buyers are, you know, they'll be skeptical of any claims from a business owner that they're not that involved in the business. They've been burnt too many times by that. So from a buyer's perspective, the notion that the owner is going to stay on and help make that transition smooth, that decreases risk. And, you know, everybody knows that the analog to decrease risk in an investment is increased value. And so they're going to value that business more highly than if the owner's planning to leave. In fact, there are a lot of investors out there that if the owner says, yeah, my plan is to leave, you know, day one after the sale, they're not interested um, just right. because they know how risky that is. And so yeah. I think the other piece, in addition to making the business more valuable, for most of our clients, they care deeply about their team. They care deeply about their customers. They care deeply about the reputation of their company and the community. And because they care so much about that, they're going to be best served by staying on to also smooth that transition and make sure that all those constituents and their reputation is protected. And the best way to do that is to be involved and to be part of that transition. And it's not to say that the business owner is going to last for two years. We have a lot of clients who don't, but you should plan on it and you should plan on communicating that to the buyer that, hey, this is something that I'm committed to and, and for all the right reasons. It's not to say, right, that a buyer and the business owner at some point aren't going to come to a different agreement, maybe sooner than two years, but at least plan on that. Yeah, I like that. And again, it's not what we know that trips us up. It's what we don't know, right? For sure. And and so, you know, like who's buying businesses right now? Is this, is it like you said, investors are, I always think that if I were a 20 something year old or a 30 something year old, I'm looking for a business that I can buy, that I can build, that I can scale. And, you know, if I got real lucky, maybe I can get the owner to seller finance part of it. Or, you know, I mean, I could get creative. Depends on obviously the size of the business. Those are typically smaller businesses. But, you know, is it VCs? Is, are they consolidating still? Or is that trend kind of going away? What's going on out there in the market? Yeah, it's a great question. For our business, our average deal size is about 70 million. And so it's typically going to be bigger than an yeah. individual buyer could manage. But what we see today in the market, obviously, interest rates haven't gone up quite a bit, have had an impact on private equity firms, which is the buyer of a good chunk of our clients' businesses. Yeah. We saw that market seize up a little bit in Q4 of 22. It's loosened up now. I think people have come to the realization that, yeah, the Fed rate at 0% was an anomaly and 5% actually is probably more normal. Yeah. And so, you know, that's definitely impacted valuations. We've seen valuations contract a little bit, but we are, the deal activity has picked up quite a bit. So our clients typically, probably 60% of those are purchased by private equity firms. Yeah. And, you know, those are, those are firms that have raised money from institutions to go out and, and buy companies. And then the other 40% are institute, they're strategic buyers, we call them, or buyers that are in and around our clients' industries that have been the active buyers. And, you know, we've got record amounts of cash 
on the balance sheets of large corporations. We've got record amounts of private equity that we call it dry powder. The financing world, the debt financing world has changed quite a bit. You know, 10 years ago, I would say 80% of deals were financed with bank debt. So that's your yeah. local bank or you know, Bank of America, whatever. Today, it's about 80% of the deals are done by private credit. And these are just like private equity funds, only instead of investing in equity, they're investing in debt. And you know, those deals are more flexible for the acquirer, for the buyer, for the private equity firm. They typically are a little bit more expensive, but they have they've definitely loosened up the market quite a bit and made, you know, whereas historically if banks quit lending, that would seize up the capital markets. We haven't seen that as much just because hey, people are looking for returns and, and places to put their capital. Which is cool. I mean, I think that having that alternative and not having just the, like you said, whether it's the local bank or, you know, big national bank kind of dictating that market is cool. You know, like one of the things that I look at and I think that people need a firm like yours is I, I, and I'll give you an example. I saw a business, I actually bought a small business from this business, but they had a small subsidiary that didn't really fit into their business model, but they got a, and they got a $50 million VC infusion. And the guys on the board from the VC were like, well, why is this little company in there? And so it was good timing. Everything worked out well for me, but this company, the guys that I knew that founded this bigger company that was maybe worth a hundred, maybe, you know, I mean, somewhere they thought it was like 150, but it was really around a hundred million is the VC came in and the way that the agreement was written is the VC stock was going to be valued differently. I mean, like they were going to get their money first, I guess is what I'm trying to say to make it simple, right? They're going to get their money first. Then when everybody thought they're going to get rich on their stock, it was a totally different situation. And I think that that's where you need a guide to say, hey, guys, you know, you have some problems here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, capital structures can be complex. And if you're not savvy and you haven't been paying attention, you can lose a lot of money as a founder, just in terms of what you're referring to, we call a liquidation preference. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes those firms not only get their money back, they get their money back times three before anyone else starts to participate. Yeah. And you know, that can be really damaging for a business and certainly for the common shareholders, you know, that were holding shares before the venture firm came in. But it is you know, I always tell people, look, these are extraordinarily important transactions, whether you're raising capital or you're going to sell the business. You definitely want expertise on your side because I can guarantee you the folks on the other side have a lot of expertise. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, uh, you know, if you were going to go play match play against Tiger Woods, you're likely to get your clock cleaned. And it's no yeah. different here. I mean, these folks are professionals and, you know, they've been in the game a long time. And so obviously that's the role that we and other folks like us play is to you know help protect the entrepreneur. So, you know, it's funny about that. Again, going back to this example, you know, just again to buy this little and I was buying it on an earn out basis and I knew that they were going to be sold and you know, a few years because the VC wasn't going in there to build that company or anything. So I made it to where if they were sold in three years, I didn't have to pay them anything, which was kind of cool. Yeah. But when I'm negotiating this, I sit down in the room and there's four Harvard attorneys and I'm like, guys, this is not that big of a company to like take all four of you dudes over there to work this out. 
And so to your point, yeah, you better be ready and sharp because the other side is going to be. I think that the other thing is, okay, somebody writes me a check for, you know, and I know this isn't, I mean, I'm just saying this, you know, kind of figuratively. They write me a check for 70 million bucks. And my buddy is with JP Morgan and he says he's like the high net worth guy, you know, like, which I smirk at. And so I guess I'll just give him that whatever it is after taxes and he'll manage that money for me. And then a year later I go, you know, my money didn't really grow that much. And I don't really even know what's happening with it. He's never explained it to me. I don't really know what my strategy is, you know, and it's a lot of money, right? So talk about the difference between kind of that retail, even if they think it's the high net worth guy versus having like a family office and the benefits of doing it really the right way. Yeah, it's a great observation. And you and I share a similar, I think, distaste for the traditional wealth management industry. You know, one of the reasons why we started our family office was we watched our clients do exactly what you just mentioned and get charged a lot of fees. I also think that unfortunately in that in the wealth management space, there's just a ton of conflicts. You know, there's a big incentive for folks to drive their clients into certain funds, which typically have elevated fee structures. And we just looked at it and said, there's got to be a better way to do it. And so to your point, I think the investment management is important. Don't get me wrong. But for our clients, that's just a piece, I think, of what's important and the true value that we're going to bring in your example, right, of the JP Morgans or the, you know, Chases, whatever it is, you know, the average ratio of clients to an advisor is about 60, um, 60 to 70. Ours is 15. And ours is purposely designed that way so that you can spend a lot of time with the client. You can be proactive. And and a lot of it, I think, is about on the investment side, at least, is not necessarily stock picking and trying to do better than the market because we're certainly not, you know, better than the market. I think it's more trying to manage the psyche of the invest of our client you know, help them not get too nervous when things are challenging. But we spent a lot of time, I mean, where you can achieve superior returns is through great tax planning, you know, tax loss harvesting, doing all of that and being thoughtful about it, which takes some attention, being thoughtful about asset allocation. And most of our clients are very high net worth. And so helping them evaluate private alternatives. I mean, they can withstand the risk of illiquidity over time. And typically those investments are going to have much better yields. And so it's something we spent a lot of uh, time with our clients on. And so it's a, I don't disagree with you. I think the traditional wealth management industry is uh, broken and we think there's a better way to do it. I love what you said. I was waiting for you to say the tax strategy, because if you make 5 million bucks a year, it's not really about making 5 million bucks a year. It's how much of it do you get to keep? And one of the reasons that I like real estate and businesses is because of the tax strategies that you can implement. And like you said, the, you know what, it's funny, the, the traditional financial planners, what they do is they want to tell you, well, you, hey, your average rate of return is X, right? I want to know what my CAGR is, right? I right. want to know my compound annual growth rate. Forget about what your averages are. And it's like marketing, it's noise. And I like what you said, because you can't recreate this money. And you can't panic. And I, I have another example is there was a guy that, that I knew that he sold his business. I think he netted 30, 35 million and put it all very aggressively in the market 
and he even bought some annuities. I mean, I'm, oh boy, I'm just, yeah, and some big, big like universal life policies that were supposed to be an investment. And so you know, somebody's just—I I don't know who the advisor was, but it was just maximizing his commission, right? And it was around 2008, 2009. He panics, but he'd also margin that account. Oh, so he ended up literally with $2 million. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now this is criminal and he tried to sue, but you know what? He signed all the disclosures. He oh, signed yeah. everything saying he understood what he was doing. Well, that guy died like six years later. Yeah. And the stress and the yeah. like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I mean, killed him really. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I think it's so important and I, I really like what you're doing and I'm glad that we had you on the show and that um, I know somebody to send people to because I'm telling you, you know, Chris, there's so many people out there. This is serious. You know, this, oh, is, yeah. Yeah. this, is, this is your life. This is money. And if you're fortunate enough to build your business to 50, 70, $100 million, you know, it should be generational, not temporary, and you should be able to impact you know, hopefully at least three generations ahead. Yeah, I, I like to say our clients as entrepreneurs, they have front-loaded the risk in their lives in terms of owning a business. It's, as you know, being an entrepreneur is highly risky. And so our job is, hey, once they've gotten, you know, they've harvested the wealth from that business, now our job is to protect it. And make sure that, you know, the example that you gave, which is a horrible one, never happens to them where hey, they never have to work again and they don't have to really worry about it. And it does, you know, require some forethought and it requires risk analysis and all that. But it is a, uh, I don't disagree with you. Like I said, I think the traditional wealth management industry is pretty broken. So, yeah. And, you know, like anything you want in life, you got to find a guide and somebody that has experience you know if i'm going to go climb mount everest i'm by, i'm hiring the best uh sherpa that i can find for right? sure i'm hiring the best i don't want somebody hey i think i can i think i can get you up there and you know th this is life or death when you are doing this and you're selling your business and the stress and you like you said there's a lot of stuff that goes into it Chris, how would people reach out to you and how would they learn more about your company and, and your services? Sure. So our, the name of our firm, interesting, you talk about the guide, is called Class 6, uh, Class VI Partners. That's named after the most difficult rapids. So you definitely need to guide, otherwise you're going to die. So <laughs> love it. I love it. I didn't even know there were six. I think when yeah. I've done that, I think it's like three or something. But uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, so any event, www.class6partners.com. They can see our website. And I'm Chris at Class 6 Partners, C-H-R-A-S at class6partners.com. And uh, always, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs that we never sign on as clients. And we love to do it just because we love entrepreneurs. So we're happy to support them. It's funny. We have a community that's Create Tailwind. And, you know, maybe down the road, we can talk about how Class 6 Partners could build a course that people could, you know, like you said, because we just love to educate people, yep. business owners, free thinkers, real estate investors, and people that are real estate investors, you're in the real estate business, you're a business owner, not just an investor. But, yep. um, you know, I really love to educate people about that. I love business owners too. Even when I was doing fee-based financial planning, 
my favorite part was getting to know the business owner, how they started the business, how they grew it, you know, and, and just the stories. And I know you get those stories too, but I love it. I love that somebody is willing to just put their neck out on the line and go for it. So thinking of that and thinking about all the business owners, I've, I've run across a lot of people that have given me great advice. You know, Chris, obviously you've become very successful in your business. So there had to be some great advice somewhere. What's the best advice anybody's ever given you? So obviously my dad's given me a lot of great advice. The one piece I would identify as a mentor of mine, his name was Jim Walker. And he always told me, hey, you know, if you think about a sine wave of ups and downs in your life, you want to keep that sine wave, you know, the depths to the heights pretty tight. And I think that's true is try not to get too low and try not to get too high, you know, when things, because, you know, for an entrepreneur in particular, there are lots and lots of highs and lows. And if you let that sine wave get too big, it'll destroy you if you're not careful. And so, you know, my dad used to say this too shall pass, right? And that's both true on the good things and the bad things. And so just, you know, being able to keep the modulation tight. You know, I like that because one of the quotes that I like is things are never as good as they seem or as bad as they seem, reality somewhere in between. And, exactly. You know, it's basically the same. It's what you just said is, yep. look, don't get too high. Don't get too low. Just keep it in the middle. And I remember when I signed my first contract to do this, to do financial planning, there was a guy that was retiring the same day. And I said, hey, what advice do you have for me? And he said, Keep your peaks and valleys close or not extreme. So like yep. it's just, you know, a lot of good advice, I guess, from all three of those, uh, the quote and that guy and your mentor as well. Yep. All right, Chris, if God came down from heaven and only allowed you to retain the knowledge that you've received from one book that you've read, what would that book be? So I'm a huge fan of Charlie Munger, who was Warren Buffett's business partner. And there's a book called Poor Charlie's Almanac. It's, yeah. it's hard to get but I've given it to all three of my kids and always recommend it. He's just, I love listening to him and, and love reading his, it's, it's really a compilation of a lot of his talks Yeah, and it is outstanding. Uh, great, great, great life advice in there. I love it. I love that you've given it to your kids. You know, like uh, one book somebody reminded me of a couple hours ago that I give out to a lot of people is The Go-Giver. Have you ever mm -hmm. read that? I haven't, but it, I like the title. Okay, so I'm going to, um, as my gift to you, I'm going to send you that book. Um, oh, thank I'll you. I'll get uh, somebody in our organization because you do not want me sending out anything because it'll never leave. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody will send you that book. So I really appreciate your time and your attitude about the business. And I'm, I can tell you're passionate. I love the humility part of your book and the relationships because it kind of reminds me a little bit of that Colorado attitude, which is, you know, I kind of like that in Naples here too, is if you think you have a lot of money, you're in Naples, you're probably not, I mean, you're not even close, you know, right, the, right. you know, it's like, you know, if you were worth a hundred million dollars down here, you're just, uh, also ran, you know, like yep, you're not, yep. you're not in that top 1% for sure. So humility is something that, because it's not all about money. I mean, wealth and happiness is not all about money. It's about time and being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And I hope that every business owner that is listening gets to that point where they can do what they want to do, whether it's going down the rapids or hitting the golf ball or going out on the boat fishing is uh, life's too short not to have fun. So for sure. 
So thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show. And we're going to end this audience like we do every episode with the incredible words of Earl Nightingale and the strangest secret. Take it away, Earl. Here's the key to success and the key to failure. We become what we think about. Now let me say that again. We become what we think about. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to hear what was shared on today's podcast. If you are looking to discover new wealth building strategies, then go to community.createtailwind.com. That's community.createtailwind.com to join our free online community and get access to free courses and in-depth training videos designed to help you build wealth and break away from the herd. Click the link in the show notes to access the community today. Thanks again for listening.